Good morning. Before we offer our thanks to God, I want to get a little personal and offer thanks to all of you here. My name is Charlie Reagan, and I've been a member of this church. My wife and I have since the middle 90s. We always sit up here in the uh, upper right field seats, right by the foul baseline. Uh, Our family's been here since the 90s. The pastor of this church uh, did my premarital counseling. They married our family. They helped me raise my children. They've helped me mourn our losses in our family. Uh, Most importantly, they helped me understand my walk with Jesus Christ. So I thank all my pastors, and I thank all of you here. Uh, I love seeing so many new young people that are new to me here. Uh, I love the renewed energy, seeing all the kids running around Wednesday nights and Sundays that are crowded as they have ever been. I just want to thank you all for the renewed love and energy y'all are showing to our church, to my church. Thank you. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, thank you for this day and our time together. Thank you that we can sit so freely in worshiping you, and we pray for those without this luxury. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, as well as the innocents in harm's way on both sides of the conflict following the attacks in Israel. Father God, these are very interesting times, and we're continually reminded that we live in a fallen world. I pray that every leader from local authorities to the national ones would turn to you for wisdom as they make the plans used to govern. I lift up our pastors and staff and every person at Covenant who helps our church function. I pray for a hedge of your protection for them and their families as they so graciously serve the flock that is our church. We lift up Craig and Andrea Parker and the Parker family as they mourn the loss of Craig's father. We pray for Bill and Cindy Hay, Mike and Sandy Witten, and Jerry and Sandra Norman as Bill, Mike, and Jerry battle cancer. We pray for Wynn Jones, and Lane Jones. We praise you for the birth of Charles Seville, C.S. Rogers, and the proud parents, Philip and Meredith, and brothers Dean and George. We pray for the women's in-town retreat this weekend with Julie Spartman as the speaker. And we pray for our missions partner, Ryan Fickert, and the Chalmers Center. We hand you all these praises. We hand you these prayer requests, those spoken and unspoken, knowing that you hear each and every one of them. We offer you these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Welcome again to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Charlie, thank you so much for that brief testimony, that story of God's faithfulness uh, in your life to your family through this church. And that illustrates well, actually, uh, one of my introductory thoughts that the stories we tell are important, particularly the stories we tell. Uh, about our communities, about our family, to our communities, and to our family. Because those stories have significant power to form us, to shape us. They shape the way we think about ourselves. They form community bonds and vision and values. So the stories we tell are important. My wife and I have to think about this reality often. We both come from difficult uh, family systems, and a lot of stories that we could share are awkward or embarrassing or troublesome in all kinds of ways. And so we have to be very uh, wise and cautious about how, uh, when, or if we will share some of those stories with our children because of the way that they might uh, impact them and shape them. Uh, Maybe you have some difficult family stories as well. Hopefully you can relate. 
Even if you can't, you're about to hear a difficult family story uh, from your Jesus family, uh, from Numbers chapter 31. The passage we're going to look at today, is a, it's a difficult passage, it's an awkward passage, it's a troubling passage, it's the kind of text that non-Christians might look at and have looked at and said, this is the reason I'm not a Christian. This is the reason I can't worship a God like that or be a part of a community of people like this because of troubling stories like this. And it would be tempting, and maybe we were tempted, (laughs) to just not tell the story, to skip over it. Uh, But friends, this is God's story from God's word, which is holy and inspired and inerrant and authoritative and is given to us by God to shape us and to form us in particular ways, to warm our hearts to God's love for us, to train us for righteousness. And so this is one of the reasons why we preach through whole books of the Bible in order, so we don't just sort of get to pick and choose our favorite passages that are easy to preach from, Uh, but we preach the difficult passages too that force us to Uh, to dig in and to wrestle with God, as it were, until he blesses us. So by God's grace, that's what we're going to do today in Numbers 31. Uh, This is a passage in which God commands Moses and his covenant people to wage war on another tribe, the Moabites and Midianites, and wipe them out, to slaughter them. Men, women children, and even to take some of the children, the young girls, and it says, take them for yourselves, make them a part of your covenant family. So it's a difficult passage we're going to look at. And there's a lot of things I want to say to sort of prep you for this, but I'm just going to relegate myself to two thoughts because the the context, um, at least the the framework that we think about these passages will largely determine how we see them and interpret them. So I want to give you two different interpretive frameworks. Uh, And the first one is the context of redemptive history. The context of redemptive history. God is the true God of the universe who is doing things in space and time. He has a plan and a purpose for his world to bring salvation to the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this means that he acts in particular ways, in particular places, in particular times, through a particular people, in ways that are not repeatable. There are biblical texts that are prescriptive, that tell us to go and do likewise. There are biblical texts like this one that are descriptive, that tell us what God has done and what God might do in the future, but is not uh, a cue for us to go and do likewise. So this is one of those passages. The second uh, grid I want to give you is the context of character. Character being sort of the aggregate uh, sum of the values and ethics, what you know to be true about a person. So people can have good character or poor character. And what you know about someone will shape the way you think about their actions. A few years ago, there was a, a famous... Uh, actor um, who was known for being a bully, who was known for being abusive, and he accidentally shot someone while filming a movie. And I thought, 
Well, of course he did. <laughs> that's the kind of person that he is. Now, that's vastly more complicated than that little joke, but I was predisposed to see him in a particular way based upon what I knew to be true about him. And so as we come to this passage, we have to begin by thinking about the character of God. Who is the God who is at work, who is acting in this passage? Well, friends, we know from the whole testimony of Scripture that God is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet who will by no means clear the guilty. In short, as we've already sang this morning, our God is holy, holy, holy. And so that's where we have to begin when we look at a difficult passage like this and understand it through that lens of who God is. And as we think about who God is and what he's doing in the world, friends, what we'll see today is that God is greatly concerned for his people. God has a great concern for the well-being of his people that leads him to act in the ways we see in this passage. And there's three uh, particular elements of that we'll see uh, of God's great care for his people. We'll see that God is greatly concerned with justice for his people. We'll see that God is greatly concerned for the purity of his people, both their moral and spiritual purity. And then we'll also see that God is greatly concerned that he be in a right relationship with his people. So I invite you now to turn your attention with me to our text. And uh, just one brief note, we'll actually end our reading uh, in verse 20 instead of 24. So we'll um, say together our word liturgy after verse 20. Here's God's holy and inerrant word from Numbers 31. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, and afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they might go against Midian to execute Yahweh's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to war. So there were provided, out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. And they warred against Midian, as Yahweh commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hor, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All the cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live 
Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against Yahweh in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of Yahweh. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and every, kill every woman who has not known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. In camp outside the camp seven days, whoever of you has killed any person, and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you are a God of steadfast love and mercy. We know this to be true, which is one of the reasons why we're so troubled when we come to a text like this. And yet we know that ultimately this reveals to us your holiness and your goodness and your purposes for your people. So we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would come, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are soft to your word. Would you shape us and mold us today and fit us for your purposes? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we'll see in our passage is God's concern with justice for his people. You see that in the first uh, 12 verses, and particularly verse 1 and 3. There's a command that God gives to avenge the people of God on the Midianites, to execute the Lord's vengeance. Now, everyone loves a good sequel, and what we have here is actually the sequel to another story that we began back in November in Numbers chapter 20 through 25. If you remember, we preached through uh, Balaam's oracles, and just to very briefly summarize what happened there, uh, God's people are traveling on their way to the promised land, and there's a group of people, the Midianites and the Moabites, Moabites and they see them coming. And they think, if they try to start something with us, we're not going to be able to do anything about it. And so they know if there's a war, there will be no military victory. And so they engage God's people in spiritual warfare. So they call Balaam, who's sort of a mercenary prophet, and they say, we will pay you if you curse these people for us. And so on multiple attempts, Balaam tries to curse God's people. But God says, whom I have purpose to bless, you cannot curse. And so they're not able to. And then they engage this warfare on a second front, a sexual spiritual warfare. Now you have to know here that the Moabites and the Midianites uh, are a culture that um, has on one hand a much too high view of uh, sex and sexuality, and in another sense a much too low view. Uh, Sexual intercourse was part of the worship of their gods. And so they would actually come and engage in sex in the temples as a way to manipulate the gods. They were also a people who practiced child sacrifice. And they're thinking, maybe we can woo the people of Israel through sexual immorality to worship our gods. And, and then they'll, they'll be on our side. We won't have to worry about them. And so this is what they do. This is what happens. We read about this in Numbers 25, and Josh preached on this a few weeks ago, they begin fornicating in mass uh, with the women of these tribes, uh, and then they begin worshiping their gods. And the language that's used there is one of divorce and remarriage. 
It says that the people of God divorced their God. And they got remarried to another God who is no God at all. And they engaged in all kinds of immorality in the process. So these are the people that God is bringing vengeance against. Those who have sought repeatedly to derail God's purposes for the world. Keep in mind that Israel is God's vehicle, ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring salvation to the world. And these people are actively opposing that. So God says, bring vengeance upon them. Now this word vengeance might uh, sort of stir up, you know, vigilante actions, that kind of thing. But the word really just means the lawful authority to set things right. The word vengeance is about justice. It's about salvation. It's about deliverance from oppression by the one who has the authority to do that. So what's happening here is not uh, genocide, it's not racial cleansing, right? But it's a holy war on those who've sought to thwart God's purposes. And friends, we have to acknowledge here that if God is God, then he has the right to judge. That he has the right to take actions like this and is just in doing so. Now you'll also notice here that this is God taking vengeance, not the people of Israel taking matters into their own hands. This is God delivering a people who would not be able to deliver themselves. Keep in mind, these are ex-slaves. This is a ragtag band of uh, nomads wandering through the desert. And God is standing up for them. He's standing up for them against the people who have repeatedly come against them, which means they've repeatedly had the opportunity to repent. And so, friends, we remember again here that God is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, and yet will not clear the guilty. The New Testament exhorts us in this way to think about God's vengeance. Paul writes in Romans, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is the Lord's. He is the one who will repay. And then here is a prescriptive passage. Here is what we're to go and do likewise. It says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. We're to trust the Lord with vengeance. We're to trust him with justice. Does it mean we never act in just ways? Of course it does. But it means that when we've been wronged, when we've been sinned against, we take that to the Lord. And one of the reasons I think we have such a hard time with this concept in a culture like ours is that we're used to being the kind of people who can get justice for ourselves. If someone wrongs us, we have avenues to take care of that. Uh, Just a few years ago, I was the victim of uh, some financial fraud. Somebody got my uh, bank account number. And uh, the reason I found this out is because I was checking my statement one day, and someone had booked themselves a rather long vacation in a rather large house in California um, at my expense. And, uh, And I wasn't even really all that worried about it. I was like, you know, it's credit, it's not real money anyways, right? Um, but it's insured, and I really don't have to worry about this. That money was back in my account that day. I had all kinds of uh, recourse to deal with that injustice. But friends, there are people all over the world, there are Christians all over the world who have no recourse when they are treated unfairly and unjustly. Uh, A Croatian Christian named Miroslav Volf, who's a professor at Yale, 
uh, who grew up in a genocidal war zone, comments on this, and this is what he says. When your brother has been gunned down by a local militia, where can you find the strength to forgive? When your mother has been abused by soldiers, where can you find the ability not to retaliate? When you hold in your arms the lifeless body of your slaughtered child, where can you find the conviction not to pick up an AK-47? How indeed. By trusting that there is a God who brings justice in this world. And friends, when we look at a passage like this, God's particular justice in a particular place in a particular time, it points us to a greater justice that God is going to enact, a greater judgment that God will bring on this world against all unrighteousness, against all self-righteousness, against every empire and nation and thought and heart that is raised up against him in rebellion. And this is good news for you if you know that there are things in your life that you have no power over, that there are enemies in your life, namely sin and death, against which on your own you have no recourse. But friends, God will do for you what you cannot do for you. He will deliver his people. He will bring justice. He is mighty to save all those who turn to him for refuge. God is passionate about justice for his people. We also see here that he has a great concern for the purity of his people, both the moral and spiritual purity. You see that in verses 12 through 13. When the warriors return home from battle, uh, they've wiped out all the men, the warriors, uh, and they bring back the women and the children. And this was actually common practice. This is more or less what they had been told to do by God when they fought battles outside of the promised land. So they're bringing them back into the camp, uh, and Moses gets mad. He gets angry, and he says, why have you brought all these women with you? Now, don't forget that these are the women with whom God's people had been fornicating a few chapters before. These are the women, many of them cult prostitutes, who had participated in a spiritual, sexual campaign against God's people to bring them into sin to woo them away from their covenant God towards a deity who is no God at all. And Moses says, they're not coming back to the camp. You have to kill them too. Now this is almost something like out of a bad sitcom. I mean, you can sort of imagine the men, they've just engaged in this battle and they're bringing all these women home with them who they've just been fornicating with a few chapters before. I mean, this is, um, this is like a scene out of Seinfeld. Okay, there's a scene where one of the main characters is like, was that wrong? Should I not have done that? I'm going to have to play ignorance on this one. You know, if you'd told me at any time that this sort of thing was frowned upon, and you can imagine their wives waiting for them as they come home with all these women. And the guy's like, yeah, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. These were people who were seeking to turn them away from God, to turn them away from life and flourishing to sin and death. And so Moses says, you have to wipe them out too. Uh, the male children would have grown up 
to be men who would have sought revenge, not vengeance, but revenge, taking matters into their own hand against the people of Israel. He says, you have to put them to death too. And the young girls who had never known a man who were not part of this campaign, now you have to imagine what would have become of them had they not been brought into the covenant people. They would have been left on their own, helpless, defenseless in these decimated cities. Bad things would have happened to them. But they're being brought into the covenant community, yes, as slaves, but slaves who had rights and privileges, who would have been treated most likely better than they would have been treated in their home community. And many of them would have been married to Israelite men. They would have become full-fledged members of the community. So we have this act that seems very troublesome to us, and not to say that it isn't. But what we see here is God actually graciously working for his people. Now you also notice here, when the men come back, they're not allowed into the camp. They're told you have to stay outside for seven days. Any of you who've killed a person or touched any slain, you have to purify yourselves. You're not allowed to come back in yet either. And if you remember, and I hope you do, from our study in Leviticus, um, not all that long ago, there are all these different ritual states of purity, of cleanness and uncleanness that God's people could be in. And there were all kinds of things that could make you unclean. And if you were unclean, you couldn't come into the camp, you couldn't come in to worship. Now, some of these things are more closely tied to sin than others. Uh, What was unclean was not necessarily unrighteous. But these things do point us to the reality that the world is not the way it should be, that there are things that are fit to be in God's presence and things that are not fit to be in God's presence. They point to our defilement with sin, that because of our sin, we are not able to enter into God's presence. We need to be purified. You see, the problem wasn't just the women avenues of temptation. The problem was them. They needed to be made clean. They needed to be dealt with. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. To quote one of your own prophets for you, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. God is deeply concerned with the spiritual and moral purity of his people. And what he's doing here is he's reminding, of that, reminding us of this. He's wiping out for them every opportunity to go after another God. And he's saying, even you need to be cleansed to come in to my presence. So friends, there are things out there and there are things in here that need to be dealt with decisively. And probably the most direct line of application here is for us men. Men, are there women in your real life or maybe in your digital life who are wooing you away from the one true God? Are there places where you're being tempted and sinning in ways that are unholy and even more significant are leading you into idolatry? Deal with it decisively. Put it to death. There are all kinds of ways this works out in our lives, though. 
It's not just sexual temptation. Uh, Maybe you struggle with not that, but the idolatry of covetousness. Covetousness of comparison. You look at other people's lives, other people's lifestyles, the things that they have, the opportunities that they participate in, the way that their kids are, the phone that they have, the shoes that she has, and you wish your life was a little bit more like that. Friends, this is sin wooing you away from your one true God who provides exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. If that's true of you, put it to death. Be aware of the external avenues of temptation. Whatever that feed is, that's making you think, I wish my life was a little bit more like that. Maybe get rid of it. And then mercilessly, ruthlessly put it to death in your heart. Maybe it's an attitude that you have. Maybe it's sort of a, a posture of coldness towards someone who sinned against you that you won't forgive. But it's eating you alive, not them. And so it's leading you away from your covenant God. Put it to death. The problem is in here, not so much out there. And if you remember back to our passage in chapter 25 again, God deals first with the sin of his own people before he deals with the sin of outsiders. So that's us. Friend, God wants to deal with your sin. He wants you to put it to death. Jesus said that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. But your hand doesn't cause you to sin. Your eyes don't cause you to sin. It's your heart that causes you to sin. So gouge it out and let Jesus give you a new one. Let Jesus wash you with his spirit, cleanse you, renew you again and again, so that by his grace you can repent, believe, and fight. Friends, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. God's greatly concerned with the purity of his people. And the last thing we see in our passage is God's great concern to be in a right relationship with his people. And you're going to see this beginning in verse 48. Uh, when the men come back from war, there's, there's all these spoils of war. There's the plunder. And uh, it's interesting, they divide that up equally between those who went to battle and those who didn't. Everyone gets a share, even those who didn't work hard for it. Uh, And certain portions of it are dedicated to the Levites and the priests for their care and for work in the temple. Special offerings, dedications for the Lord. And then when we get to verse 48, we see that the officers of all these uh, troops come in with a particular offering that they want to offer to God. And they say, we've counted all of our soldiers. Nobody died in the battle. Just a great testament to God's care for them in this situation. And so we wanna, we've counted and we know everyone's still here. And so we want to offer a particular, uh, a particular offering to God for this. Now there's a couple of things going on here. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30, uh, anytime a census was taken, which this is a census, uh, there's a tax that's required to go along with it. A ransom tax, an atonement tax, probably to remind the people that your strength is not in yourself. It's in God. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. So they're doing that here. They're giving this tax to remind themselves 
We didn't do this. This victory, God gave us this victory. He fought for us, not ourselves. But you also have to notice here that any time there's the need for atonement or ransom, what's going on there is that there's a broken relationship. Atonement is literally at one minute. Atonement is that which brings back together two parties who are not at peace. Atonement always involves an offended party and an offending party. It involves one who has sinned against another, a relationship that must be made right. And it's interesting to think about uh, what was going on with these men as they come back into the camp after they've uh, engaged in this warfare, they've considered those who've already died in the plague for their sin, as they consider their own lack of purity that they have to be cleansed to come back into God's presence. And you have to wonder, are they thinking, we're no better than the Midianites. What they got, we deserve. How can we come into God's presence knowing that? So they bring this offering, this atonement offering, as a memorial before the Lord, as if to say, God, when you look at this gold and silver, be merciful to us. Be gracious to us. We know that we deserve your righteous judgment. But God, give us grace. Give us mercy. And friends, we miss the point of this whole passage if we can't identify with ourselves in that way. If we can't say to ourselves, I'm no better than the Midianites. If I get what I deserve, I get God's justice. I get wrath. The Westminster Confession is very helpful here. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Friends, sin is any time you don't live up to God's standards. Any time you cross the line. And it goes on, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. But friends, God has given the gift of atonement, a much greater gift of atonement than gold or silver or the blood of bulls and calves. He has given the gift of his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God who offered up himself, who kept the righteous requirements of the law, who laid down his life for those who deserve wrath and judgment. And by grace, through faith in him, God looks at us not in our sin, not in our defilement, but in the holy, beautiful, pure righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus came once to deal with sins, and he'll come again to rescue those who are eagerly awaiting him. Friends, this is good news. There are some stories that are worth telling over and over again, even if they're awkward. I love telling people the story of how I met my wife. It's super awkward. <laughs> of how we fell in love and became Christians. Super embarrassing. But it's such a beautiful story because it's a story of God's work in our lives. And friends, this story, this is the gospel story. The story of a great king who's come to redeem his people. 
of a strong husband who's come to marry and redeem a weak and defiled bride to bring her into his family, to be united with her, to wash her, to make her pure and spotless without blemish. It's a good story. It's worth repeating. Friends, God cares deeply for his people. He cares deeply for you. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to lay down his life for you. Friends, God will right every wrong. He will wash away every stain. And we will all together dwell in his house forever. It's good news. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy, that you have given us the gift of atonement. That our sins might be forgiven. That our record of debt wiped away. That you would impute to us the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A free gift to be received by grace through faith. Oh Lord, would you shape us even as we come to this meal, Lord, remind us of the wonderful gospel story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.